What's beneath the surface of true crime? Uncover brings you there with premium investigations that demand justice. Each season delves into a distinct case, from the inner workings of a cult to the disturbing legacy of residential schools. Promising new content year-round, Uncover will take you on a journey through explosive revelations with hosts dedicated to revealing the truth. Uncover, the best in true crime. Find it on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. So earlier this week, NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg and British Prime Minister Boris Johnson warned Western allies that they need to prepare for the long haul in Ukraine. When Ukraine fatigue is setting in, very important to show that we're we're with them for the long haul and uh, uh, we're giving them that strategic resilience that they need. This is obviously not an encouraging message for Ukrainians who want to see a quick and decisive end to this conflict, but also for people in other parts of the world that are feeling the ripple effects of this war. Ukraine's leader said in a video statement yesterday that millions of people could starve if Russia continues to block them from exporting wheat and grain to the rest of the world. Ukraine and Russia are often described as the world's breadbasket. They're major suppliers of grain to a lot of the Middle East and Africa. But since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, this supply has been cut off. Russia has been blocking hundreds of ships holding harvested Ukrainian grain in the Black Sea. And in places like Sudan, Egypt and Somalia, which were already seeing food insecurity because of a combo of climate change, conflict and economic downturns caused by the pandemic, the war threatens to make things even worse, with millions of people at risk of starvation. In Somalia, mothers fight an invisible enemy, famine. Ukraine accuses Russia of blackmailing the world and using food as a weapon of war. In fact, Africa is a hostage. It's being held by those who unleashed war against our state. But Russia says Western sanctions are to blame for the global food crisis. This week on the show, I'm talking to Dr. Hassan Kanenji. He's the director of the Horn Institute of Strategic Studies based in Kenya. And he's going to walk us through how countries in the region are being impacted by the war and unpack the African perspective on how to resolve this. But first, we're going to hear from Ukrainian MP Yevhenia Kravchuk. She says time is running out to get the harvested grain out of Ukraine, and she's been campaigning for more help from the West to get the Russians out of the Black Sea. I'm Tamara Kandaker, and you're listening to Nothing is Foreign. Yevhenia, thank you so much for being here. I really, really appreciate it. So, to start off, um, in, in terms of the world's food supply, can you just give me a sense of what is stuck in Ukraine right now? Uh, so right now we're speaking about the harvest that was uh, from the previous year, for the 21. And it's about uh, 20 million uh, of ton of grain and corn and some uh, sunflower oil as well uh, that were not uh, shipped because the shipment takes a long time. But then we're speaking about the harvest of a new year that would be up to 50 million ton. 
the harvest of uh, 2022 will be less than from previous years because part of the country is occupied, a part of the country uh, was shelled, bombed and mined. We'll have this problem if not solved every year because uh, if you can't ship the harvest fast enough, then you have to put it somewhere into the storage. But uh, Russians are also bombing the uh, storages. Ukraine's expecting this year's harvest to be around 60% of last year's crop of grain. And the country's foreign minister, Dmitry Kuleba, explained at Davos recently what would happen if the grain that's currently sitting in silos isn't exported and there isn't anywhere to store the next harvest. And while there will be a food crisis unfolding in some parts of the world, Ukrainian grain will be getting rotten under open skies. Now, if this problem is not resolved, Ukrainian farmers will not plant another crop. And we will, in, and the whole agricultural cycle in Ukraine will be interrupted. And that will mean a multi-year food crisis. I know Ukraine's been trying to get this food out in other ways because the Black Sea ports are blocked. Can you tell me about some of the other routes that are being used? First of all, to ship it through the river. We use Danube. Also, it's, uh, you know, putting into the special train containers. But we have a problem because the uh, widths of the railroad in Ukraine is different than Europe. So you need to re-put it at the, like somewhere reload. at the border. Yeah, reload right. at the border. Efforts to ship by road and rail have been hampered by logistical problems. Freight expert Oleg Kostyuk says the will is there, but not the capacity. Even though if everything will work well, road, railroad and Danube river ports, um, we will be able to export like two, maybe three million tons. The amount of the grain to be shipped away, it's huge. I mean, that's why everyone is using ports and sea, because you can then ship out big amount. And we count it if the harvest that we usually uh, have uh, is being shipped in one year. And the same amount of harvest, uh, if you use other logistics chains, it will take six years. How much of the world relies on food exports from Ukraine and which parts of the world are most reliant on Ukraine for their food supply? 400 million of people rely uh, on Ukrainian uh, food supplies. This amount of uh, grain, corn and sunflower oil feeds people all around the world, uh, but mostly uh, from African countries and Middle East. Egypt is the world's biggest importer of wheat. It gets 85% of it from Russia and Ukraine. The two nations also supply war-ravaged Yemen with 40%. And Ukraine's wheat makes up around half of Lebanon's needs. The country is still recovering from the Beirut port blast in 2020 that destroyed its main grain silo. So Ukraine produces around 9% of the world's wheat, and that's way less than places like China and India. But what Ukraine produces is crucial because those countries have to keep most of their wheat for their own people. It's the start of the summer and India is experiencing heat waves and the hot weather is already hurting farmers. That is why New Delhi has banned wheat exports. It wants to put India's own food security first amid frequent supply chain disruptions and rising food prices. The countries that have relied the most on Russia and Ukraine are looking for other sources now, but it's not easy. Global wheat prices have skyrocketed and the logistics of importing from other places are way more complicated. 
That's why we ask of the world, we ask NATO countries, we ask United Nations to do something, not to have hunger in, in Africa or Middle East. And we do what we can do, like changing the logistics, working with other countries. But the mm -hmm. most sustainable variant to solve this is to clear the Black Sea from Russian ships and stop the war then the problem will be solved. And of course, uh, we also ask for the special weapons, anti-ship missiles, so Russians would be afraid to stay at the, these ports and blocking the, uh, the, the, the way the ships go. Uh, but also, it's a problem, will be a problem of insurance companies, because if uh, there will be no guarantees, no one will put the insurance on the ships that are in the Black Sea going in and out. That's why we've been asking about the uh, convoy of um, maybe Black Sea NATO countries that are around. Bulgaria, Turkey. And why NATO? Because Russians will be afraid to attack NATO ships because then it will uh, target, you know, trigger the fifth um, uh, article of NATO, attacking a NATO member. That's why, you know, we're asking about this convoy. I know Lithuania has proposed a naval coalition to safely escort these cargo ships past Russian warships and through the Black Sea, but NATO countries are reluctant because this could provoke some kind of confrontation. Like, I know you're saying that Russia would be afraid to attack NATO ships, but what do you make of the fear that this could escalate the conflict even further? Look, uh, if NATO countries will close their eyes, the problem will not be solved, you know, and, and won't go anywhere. Decisions should be made uh, right now, and someone in the world had to have this courage to take the decision. Because, I mean, United Nations were uh, uh, created as an organization to prevent wars and to keep security and peace after the Second World War. Well, guess what? It's not working the way it should do. Uh, so if it's not United Nations, then some countries that, uh, you know, it, it shouldn't, it probably uh, may be the whole uh, NATO alliance, but, you know, chose the countries that are in the Black Sea. Bulgaria, Turkey, um, you know, those who, who uh, border, and maybe they can uh, do the job. So Russia has said that it'll consider opening up the Black Sea ports if the sanctions against it are reviewed. They've said that the sanctions are also contributing to this food crisis because Russia is also a big exporter of wheat and fertilizer. Is that something that you think should be considered? No. No, not at all. It's not a problem of Ukraine or something, you know, it's it, it's attack on the sovereign state. And if uh, the world thinks that sanctions uh, should be lowered because uh, they took a hostage of the Black Sea and the port, uh, well, then we'll have a big problem with uh, um, world order, international law, because in any corner of the world, another dictator will say, hey, uh, you know, world doesn't do anything with this aggressor. I can do the same. Sanctions can be lowered only when Russia stops uh, killing Ukrainian people, will go out of the all occupied territories, and Ukraine will restore its uh, territorial uh, integrity. My name is Ian Urbina. 
I've reported on some pretty mind-blowing stories, but nothing like what happens at sea. If they got within 800 meters, that is when we would fire warning shots. Murder, slavery, human trafficking, and staggering environmental crimes. Men have told me that they've been beaten with stingray tails, with chains. If you really want to understand crime, start where the law of the land ends. The Outlaw Ocean. Available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. So Ukraine says lifting sanctions against Russia isn't an option and that they need more advanced weapons systems from the U.S. and its allies to resolve this. But if you ask people in the countries that are going hungry as a result of this crisis, they don't necessarily agree. Hassan Kanenji is the director of the Horn Institute of Strategic Studies based in Kenya. And I asked him for an overview of the places that were feeling the impacts the hardest in terms of food security. I think um, the most affected parts are uh, the Sahel region, uh, North Africa in particular, and uh, as well as the Horn of Africa region, uh, which relies heavily on uh, food imports, especially wheat imports from the conflict area of Russia, Ukraine. And right now they are in dire need of food, not just even wheat, but uh, you know, everything else, Somalia, Ethiopia, Sudan, uh, these are countries whose staple is actually wheat and it forms uh, the largest part of uh, their daily consumption. I wonder if we can just zoom in on Somalia really quickly, just as an example, because I know things are particularly bad there. Can you give me a sense of what the food crisis there looks like right now? First of all, because of years of conflict, uh, this country has not had a chance to be able to do uh, sufficient farming to be able to make up for the shortfall. And so with the outbreak of the conflict in Ukraine, uh, that has meant that uh, the communities within Somalia are on the brink of starvation if something is actually not done. In Somalia, mothers fight an invisible enemy, famine. They travel thousands of miles to camps for the internally displaced to feed their children. We were using a donkey cart to travel. It took us five nights to come here. What is important to remember is that a number of these areas also suffer from, uh, you know, rainfall shortage as a result of climate change. What this has meant is not only has their source of livelihood, especially pastoralists, been taken away. Climate change is at the heart of the crisis, and Somalis have been hardest hit. As their livestock die, so too does their way of life. Whatever help that could have come, either as a result of uh, normal supply chains, or as a result perhaps of humanitarian aid, of course, which has now shifted fundamentally to help out in Ukraine, has dissipated. And so this is leaving populations to their own devices. We're probably going talking about you know, tens of millions of probably of people who are going to face enormous food shortages, all the way from South Sudan to Sudan, to Somalia, to northern parts of Kenya. Across the Horn of Africa, four seasons of failed rains have led to the worst drought in 40 years, leaving 29 million people, including 2 million children, in need of food. It's pushing populations into desperation. It's pushing communities into instability and fueling certain forms of conflict across the continent. What are the potential long-term impacts, do you think, of these food shortages? What kind of instability could we see? 
One of the causes of uh, revolutions of the continent has been inability of governments to provide for their own citizens, especially when it comes to food. This is going to lead to massive inflation. This is going to fuel potential civil strife in a number of countries. It's already happening, especially in West Africa. It's happening in Sudan. Two years ago, a loaf of bread in Khartoum cost two Sudanese pounds. Today, a smaller loaf costs you 50, or around 11 US cents. Sudan imports some 87% of its wheat from Russia and Ukraine, according to UN data. UN agencies are warning that rising levels of hunger threaten to further destabilize a country that already faces growing conflict and poverty and regular protests against military rule. Not to mention a number of these areas, especially the facing food shortages, are also prone to violent extremism and terrorism. And so terrorist groups are having a field day as a result. And they also seem to have certain resources to be able to offer to vulnerable communities. So this increases not just the threat on the continent, but the risk of exporting this kind of extremism that is building up as a result of this shortfall. I'm curious, why is this part of the world so reliant on Ukraine for wheat? Why can't uh, these countries get wheat from other places? Well, the comparative advantage that these two regions have had uh, meant that it was easier and and cheaper to import wheat uh, from that part of the world as opposed to others. And so this led to over-reliance on wheat. Of course, it was never conceived that there was going to be a conflict that was going to interrupt the supply chain. It is something that the continent did not prepare for. Now, this is also compounded or complicated by the fact that uh, Moscow is facing sanctions from the West. And the elimination of the SWIFT system. Canada is trying to squeeze Russia's economy and now part of a group of countries that wants Russia removed from SWIFT, the main system for global financial transactions. Our goal is to suffocate the Russian regime. We know that this is the time to put maximum pressure. So that makes it very difficult for the continent to be able to build uh, some level of, uh, of cushion that uh, can be able to help their people even in the short term. And that is why I think uh, the recent visits by the leadership of the African Union is a reflection of the reality of what's happening on the ground. Just to clarify for people who maybe missed that, earlier this month, the African Union chief went to Russia. He asked Vladimir Putin to lift the blockade, and he also asked for the restrictions on exports of Russian wheat and fertilizer to be lifted. A friendly visit to Vladimir Putin. A rare sight as the West announces fresh sanctions. But Senegal's President Macky Sall says it isn't right for Africa to be caught in the crosshairs, cut off from crucial grain imports from Ukraine and Russia. Can you just talk a little bit about how big of a factor the sanctions against Russia are in the food crisis in Africa? How much of an impact is that having? Sanctions against Russia, while they may have a limited impact, especially of uh, uh, preventing Russia from accessing, you know, certain markets and therefore, uh, you know, a source of revenue being taken away, uh, the inability of uh, Russia or Africans to transact with Russia because of the financial uh, sanctions means that even those African countries that have the money still will not be able to actually access food. At the same time, Uh, The rest of the world, especially, let's say, the West, is not offering a credible, uh, robust alternative. 
that can be able to plug in for that hole, in part because they also have to cushion themselves against some of those, you know, exigencies. It is not exactly a situation that perhaps, you know, Africa have been forced to moralize about. And I think uh, that is what is explaining some of the attitudes that Africa has towards the entire conflict that's going on in Europe. We actually did an episode recently, maybe a couple of months ago, about why so many countries in the global south have refused to take sides in this conflict. And a big reason why was exactly what we're talking about, that their populations were vulnerable in a variety of ways in a conflict between two superpowers. And I wonder, could you see more countries in Africa and other parts of the global south being forced out of non-alignment and kind of being forced off the fence as this food crisis gets worse? I don't see a lot of countries getting out of that non-alignment. Africa's position is that there has to be a move towards a peaceful resolution of the conflict. Africa generally does not support continued arming of either side, you know, or continued conflict, because there's nothing to gain on the continent as a result of continuation of this conflict. What is going, I think, to happen is you're going to see a strategic calculation by the continent or the countries on the continent in trying to hedge uh, their fortunes. The U.S. and Ukraine have also accused Russia of stealing Ukrainian grain and trying to sell it to African countries that are dealing with drought and facing famine. And this would mean these countries are in an even tougher position of having to choose between cheap food in a time of crisis and appearing like they're siding with Russia. But Dr. Kenenji doesn't see this as a real dilemma. He told the New York Times recently, Africans don't care where they get their food from. And if someone's going to moralize about it, they're mistaken. The need for food is so severe that it's not something they need to debate. So we heard recently from Western leaders that this war could last for years. If that's the case, what do you think the solutions are for these countries that are dealing with these food shortages short term and long term? I think the comfort of getting easy food and easy wheat has made these countries complacent and therefore not you know, invest in the technologies that are going to be able to generate food and to ensure food security on the continent. And so I think going forward, you know, African countries will have no choice but to invest in new technologies in agriculture, but also try to diversify their sources outside the conflict area of Russia and Ukraine. Going back to something that we talked about earlier, there has been $16 billion a month from the international community that's gone in to help with the war. But so far, the UN has collected just $93 million to help with the hunger crisis in Africa. And I guess I'm just wondering what your thoughts are and what you make of that contrast, considering the situation in a lot of African countries when it comes to food security. The kind of double standards that actually have uh, been going on is something that has come to color and to shape Africa's understanding of the conflict. Because as we speak, uh, millions of people have been starving and displaced in Congo. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people in Ethiopia over because of the conflict in Tigray are on the brink of starvation. Somalia is in a desperate position. Sudan is on the brink of implosion because of uh, the dire need for food. The Sahel region, people are literally falling, you know, like flies in certain parts. And so to the extent that only $100 million 
have advanced to the continent of 1.4 billion, but then 16 billion is being sent elsewhere, you know, virtually, you know, every other fortnight. It is something that uh, I think has left a scar that may not heal anytime soon. And so it's going to have long-term geopolitical and international diplomatic impact with regard to the ability of the West to exercise or have the kind of influence it has had for much of the last 100 years. Dr. Kanji, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. On Thursday, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced $250 million in food aid. He made the announcement from Rwanda. He's at a meeting there for the Commonwealth Heads of Government. He blamed Russia for skyrocketing food prices, and he tried to rally support for Ukraine from countries in the Commonwealth that are feeling the impacts of the global food crisis but haven't condemned Russia. So I mentioned an episode we did earlier about why so much of the Global South has refused to take sides in this conflict. And in it, we covered the recent history of NATO intervention in Africa, the less recent history of the non-alignment movement, as well as the continent's relationship with the Soviet Union and how all of that is playing into its perception of this conflict. So if you want to dive a bit deeper into what Dr. Kanenji was saying about Africa's position on this, make sure you listen to that one. It was published on April 9th. And before I let you go, there's also an update on another story we've been following, Colombia's presidential elections. After a second round of voting earlier this week, Gustavo Petro became the country's first ever leftist president. His vice president, Francia Marquez, is the first black woman to hold the post. Petro campaigned on a promise to fundamentally overhaul the economy. Inequality was the issue that dominated the election. But he also has another challenge on his hands ongoing violence in rural Colombia and making sure that the very fragile peace in the country actually holds. We did an episode on the task ahead of him and it was published on June 3rd. You can find it in our feed. And that's all for this week. You've been listening to Nothing is Foreign. Our producer is Joyta Shangupta. This week, we had production help from Ashley Mack. Our sound designer is Graham McDonald with help from Yvette Sin. Our showrunner is Adrian Chung. Nothing is Foreign is a co-production of CBC News and CBC Podcasts. Willow Smith is our senior producer and Nick McKay-Blokos is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Joseph Shabison. If you like this episode and you want to help new listeners find the show, please take a second to rate and review us wherever you're listening. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at CBC Podcasts. I'm Tamara Kandacker. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you back here next week. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.